Well, during Lent this year and the 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter, we're going to be concluding our slow and steady march through the Gospel of Mark. We uh, picked up on Ash Wednesday heading into chapter 14, which is the longest chapter in Mark's Gospel. And if it were a play, it'd be the, the part where the falling action starts and everything starts rushing toward its conclusion. Uh, we actually began uh, our, our foray into Mark's Gospel in October of 2021. Some people in this room were not even alive then, back when we started that. Um, but this uh, multi-year endeavor of going through the gospel verse on verse, we, we did so with the conviction that if we are going to be a community committed to practicing the way of Jesus, then we need to see Jesus clearly. And that's what Mark's gospel is about. It is the shortest, it is the most direct uh, the, the gospel writer is laser focused on the actions of Jesus, on his character, on his mission, on his work. And we see that focus from the very opening line of the gospel. Mark opens with the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And even in that opening sentence, we see three parallel, parallel storylines that are, that are hinted at, that are all working together simultaneously throughout his telling of the gospel story. And now in the final week of Jesus' life, we see those storylines all coming together. Mark wants us to know that this is a story about creation, about Israel, about its longing for a Messiah, and it's a story about Rome, but not just about Rome, but about every power that poses itself as an alternative to the kingdom that is breaking into the world. So I want to unpack those three storylines really briefly before we go into our gospel reading this morning. First, the storyline of creation. Mark's beginning of his gospel are with two words, the beginning, which should be an echo back to the beginning of the whole uh, story of the Bible, in the beginning. And in fact, in the original languages, it's the exact same phrase. So right from the get-go, as with John's gospel, Mark is saying, listen up, whatever else this story is about, it is a story about God, with God, in God, and about a new creation that is coming into the world, the, this new thing that God is doing in Jesus. And it's a story of, of undoing the stranglehold that sin and death have on this world. And regardless of where you are coming from this morning, if you would you know, consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're not sure, if you think religion is crazy in general, and I don't know, you're here as like a sociology experiment or with taking notes or whatever it is, on some level, there's this baseline agreement that things as they are now, things as we experience them, are not the way they are meant to be. All of the distrust that hunts our, our public discourse, all of the, the poverty, the war, the injustice that we see. And it's not just that those things exist out there, they also exist in here. We are bent away from the good and toward patterns of self-destruction. And Mark is saying, look, that's how it was. But a new thing is coming. Jesus has come to bring all things back into harmony with the Creator, and that is good news. Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. So that's the first storyline. Storyline number two is about Israel. 
uh, that this good news about Jesus, the Messiah, which as Hannah pointed out last week, means the anointed one. If all of creation is groaning under the weight of brokenness, then, then the Old Testament's the prophets, they dreamed of this time when God would begin to set all of those things right, that the kingdom would come, that the one that was there just out on the horizon would begin to flood the world and usher in this period of peace and beauty and, and put the world to rights and shalom this time of peace between nations, between people, between us and even the earth itself would be restored. And so the story of Israel, into which Mark is writing his gospel, is waiting on pins and needles for this message to come, for this Messiah to come. And Jesus receives his anointing at a dinner party with his disciples by an unnamed woman who, in a sheer act of desperate beauty, begins to pull against the weight of her culture to show what exactly is going on. What does it mean that the Messiah is here in our midst? You see, this is one of the beautiful things about the gospel. Jesus does not just come out of nowhere. He comes to a history already in progress. He comes to a people rooted in a place in the middle of an ongoing story that God has with Israel. And this whole story from creation to the calling of Abraham and the, and the blessing of the world through him, up, up through the exodus and the, the covenant at Mount Sinai, and then the line of kings through David, the heartbreak of the exile to the prophets, it's all been leading up to this moment. Jesus is the climax of this story. And so Mark tells us in the passage we're about to read, it all happened during the Passover. Because of course it did. This is the story that God is telling. The final storyline that Mark weaves together in these final chapters is the story of Rome. But it's not just of Rome, it is of every empire that stands as a rival to the kingdom of God. Mark finishes his opening sentence with this, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in Mark's day, there was only one person who was bold enough to, and who had the power to claim uh, the right to divinity that he was the son of God, and he went by the title Caesar. So for all the world bowing under the weight of this empire, he was the divine one. He was the bridge between heaven and earth. And so to be a disciple of Jesus, by contrast, was to claim that Jesus was both Messiah and Christos, the son of God. It was to say that you live under the rule of an alternative kingdom to the empires of this world. To say that your citizenship is not in a banner, in a flag, in an ideology. No, it is to a Lord who goes by a name other than Caesar. And you got to know that was a dangerous confession. During the time when Mark's gospel was written, atheism in Rome was a capital crime. And followers of Jesus were sentenced to that crime all because of their claim that Jesus was the son of the one true God and Caesar was not God. So those are the three storylines that make up this gospel, creation, Israel, Rome. And as we turn into the final week of Jesus' life, we see all of those storylines coming to a head in the cross and the empty tomb. But like a master storyteller, Mark slows down time to focus us in on what he really wants us to see. The first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel take place over a roughly three-year period. But the last six all take place within one week week when Jesus confronts the religious leaders 
and the powers. All that's told over the last six chapters. Also, he can show us how these three storylines are coming together. And this is a multi-layered gospel describing this multi-layered reality. And that is a good thing because you and I, we live multi-layered lives. And so with that, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. We pick up after Jesus was anointed at a dinner party earlier in the week and Judas made plans to betray him. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him. I said in the first service, as I was reading it, it reminds me of like a spy novel, something you'd see. Follow the guy with the water jar. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus is known in the community that gathers around the table. It's somewhat striking that in the final days of his betrayal, his arrest, his abandonment, We see Jesus in two scenes back to back, just casually reclining at a dinner party with his friends. A few different biblical scholars have pointed out that uh, of the roughly three years that encompass Jesus' ministry, there's actually only about 52 days individually recorded in the Gospels. So there's a whole lot about uh, what Jesus does that we just don't know about. But it's somewhat striking that Of all the things that his disciples remembered, times at the table make their appearance over and over again. So much of what they remember happened around a table. 
In the last week alone, like I said, he's got these two dinner parties, one where he's anointed with perfume, and then the Passover meal, in which he reinterprets all of Israel's history. He says this in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Those words take and give frame this entire meal. Tim Chester calls this dining room table discipleship. And the amazing thing about it is how poised Jesus appears. Betrayal is something that marks the entirety of this meal. And yet... He knows that he's going to be abandoned. He knows that he's going to be betrayed. He knows that he is going to be made to suffer, and yet he is a non-anxious presence in the room. One of my theological mentors, Dallas Willard, uh, once was asked to describe Jesus' character in one word, and after a long characteristic pause, he said, relaxed. And Mark makes it clear that this event that we know as the Last Supper, it takes place on the Pesca or the Passover, the holiest day, the holiest of all of the Jewish festivals. It was commemorating the deliverance from Egypt when the angel of death passed over the firstborn in Jewish homes that were marked by the blood of a lamb that was, that was sacrificed for that meal. And the faithful of Israel were not allowed to, se- to celebrate this outside of Jerusalem. And so the entire city would swell in attendance over the week of this festival. People would make pilgrimage. This had been the tradition for generations. Jesus knew it by heart. He, no doubt, had participated in this pilgrimage for many, many years. And if you've ever been to a Seder dinner, you know that there is an order, there's a routine, a kind of scriptedness to the meal. Uh, The courses tell the story of God's deliverance. uh, uh, It's a way of holding the present by looking back at a definitive event that made the future possible, that made the present possible, that allows you to look into the future. It's like the first beams of sunlight after a long dark night it's it's you know that the that the grace is coming you know that the horizon is is on its way you can start to see the little bit of light into pierce into the darkness and even as you see that you remember what it's like to bask fully in its warmth while you are sitting in the twilight waiting for it to come and so the whole city would swell not just with people but it would swell with all sorts of emotions as well mixture of fear, anticipation, hope. All of that blended up together. And, and that made for quite a volatile place. The, the scene was so tense that the Roman garrison had to bring in additional guards. Pilate, the governor, uh, came from his home in the countryside into the city because just to be there in case any sort of rebellion would break out. So at this meal, even as the people celebrated their deliverance from Egypt, they also were living in the reality of being under the heel of Rome. And the prophets, they spoke of a Messiah who would come and deliver the people from political oppression, from economic devastation, and he would do this during the Passover. And so each year to participate in this meal was to remember the God who had liberated before, the God who would do it again. And that would begin by reciting the Psalms, 
And then the meal would be divided into four parts, each concluding with the drinking of a cup of wine. And first came the blessing over the assembly by the host of the meal. Uh, And then he would retell the story in response to a child's question. The the, the cutest part of the Passover is when a child comes up and says, why is this night different from every other night? And the host would tell the story that was central to the identity of the people of God's faithfulness, of God's hearing the cry of the oppressed, his deliverance from Egypt, and anticipating the the future redemption of the Messiah. And then a blessing over the foods would would unfold. They told the story of bitter captivity in Egypt and both the hardships and the blessings of the Exodus, the unleavened bread because there was no time, the, the bitter herbs symbolizing the bitterness of their slavery, the stewed fruit, the roast lamb, a reminder of this lamb that was slain whose blood purchased the life of the first child. And then family and guests would participate in this meal followed by singing and drinking a fourth cup of wine, a lot of wine. And after this, we are told that Jesus took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples with a single word in Greek that our Bibles translate as take. As you can imagine, there's been a lot of ink spilled over what these words mean. And a lot of theological fights have, uh, have unfolded over this one little word. What you have to know is that Greek has different tenses than English and and different moods. And so this particular uh, word take is called an aorist active imperative, which to get super nerdy on you, is calling on the result of something in the past that gives rise to the action that you are taking in the present. But this is also an action that the disciples must take. It's an action for them to, to take on Take on my life, Jesus is saying. Take, take it upon yourself. Take it into you. And Jesus' point is for them not just to remember in the past tense, but to participate in the resurrected life with them in the here and now. And so it is that whenever we come to this table, we are looking backward to Jesus, not just to his death, but to his life, to his teaching about the kingdom, to his, and then looking to his, his resurrection, to his ascension, to the coming of the Spirit. But we also look around in the present, to the presence of himself in the community here and now. And we look forward to the renewal of all things. This is what all the Hebrew prophets from Isaiah through through the revelation of John envision the future as this banquet with Jesus at the head of it. Where everything is renewed, where everything is as it is meant to be. What the prophets call the messianic banquet. What John calls the wedding feast of the Lamb celebrating the, the union of heaven and earth. And you can imagine this one big, long, beautiful magnolia table where everything is perfect and in its place stretching from Maine to Chile, where every nation, tongue, and tribe is present. That is where the story is going. Past, present, future, all coming together when we sit at this table with Jesus at the head of it. Paul later writes that whenever you eat and you drink, You are proclaiming that reality until he comes again. So it's not just looking backward at Jesus' death. It's looking forward to his return. Our eating and our drinking, whenever we do it in the present, is a sign of the things to come. Theologian N.T. Wright notes this. 
The hardest thing about the sacraments is that they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing that past story and the divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes part of the story and receives benefit from such actualization. The word that the uh, New Testament writers use is one of my favorites. In Greek, it's anamnesis, which is like the opposite of amnesia. And it means literally to journey to the place where the memory is located. It's this kind of actualized awareness and participation in which past, present, and future all get mashed up together. As I was thinking uh, this week about how to describe this, um, this, this came to mind. I've been a pastor for nearly 20 years, and I've had the, the privilege of doing a lot of memorial services over my day. Um, and I don't know what this says about me, but uh, I will take a funeral over a wedding nine times out of ten. It's just how I roll. Um, I had the privilege of doing my, my grandmother's funeral almost ten years ago. I was telling Mandy earlier this week that it was the most fun I have ever had at a funeral. I literally put the fun into funeral. It was sweet. Um, and not least of which is because I felt the freedom to engage in some light roasting of my nana. And get confirmation from the laughter. I said some good things about her too. Don't, don't worry. Uh, but to, to get some confirmation from, from the people that like the things that drove me crazy about her were the things that everybody, yeah, that everybody saw her more or less the same way. But she loved people well. She would do anything for you. She would often go beyond her means to meet people's needs. And the, in the room, uh, there were about 200 people present. And she lived to be 100 years old. So you can imagine, like, all of her friends, all of her, her relatives, including even one of her children, and she outlived all of them. So it says something that that many people showed up in a lot of lives that she touched. And they were there because despite all of her foibles, she was a woman whose life was deeply shaped by the gospel. And as you're telling the story of somebody's life, somehow their past the present and the future all are held together in that one moment. We weren't just remembering who she was. We were celebrating how her past had shaped who we are in the present. How all that was good and beautiful and true about the way that she lived her life was going to continue to shape us in the future. You see who you were. You see how you are now. And you see how you might become all at the same time. And when you remember, you're pulling from the past, you're looking toward the future, both to shape how you exist in the present. And I think that is what Jesus is getting at when he tells them to take this bread, take hold of me, receive me. Do life with other followers of Jesus around a table in remembrance of me. Let the past and the future break into the present. Let that shape the direction of your life. Because something happens in a meal when Jesus is present. So what would happen if every time you ate uh, a meal in your community group or with other followers of Jesus, with your family, if you took the time to remember who God has been in your life, who God is in your life, if you tell the stories of how God has been present to you, when you were looking for just a pinprick of light to pierce through the darkness and you ate and you celebrated his faithfulness, 
And you practice recognizing the presence of Jesus in this meal, in each other, around a table. And the thing is, if you can recognize his, his presence at work around the table, you will be able to recognize his presence in your life as well. And the table, the reason we come to it each week is this place that trains us to remember and to discern Jesus' presence in all of the places where we eat and all of the places where we go throughout the week. The act is way more than about the bread and the cup. It's about the whole meal. Even more than that, it's an invitation to live life around a table in community with each other, with other disciples of Jesus, with Jesus himself as the host of the meal. All the other Gospels, Jesus says, do this as a way of remembering me. And the, the meal that Jesus had in mind is not a pinch of bread or a shot of wine or a cracker. It is, this, it is a meal. It's, it's this, this life, this community that's gathered around the table with other followers of Jesus to tell the story of how God has delivered you so that you can live that story out in the world. The thing is, the stories that we tell end up being the stories that tell us. They end up being the things that shape the way that we live our life. University of North Carolina sociologist Christian Smith conducted a groundbreaking study on the religious attitudes, opinions, beliefs of young people, uh, what the landscape of American uh, teenage religiosity looked like. And among the striking findings that he had, one of the, one of the most striking to me is that among those who are highly engaged in their faith, there is the presence of faith stories or these intentional conversations that take place in the home about faith. And he knows that those stories have a way of fostering reality in the, in the minds and in the imaginations of young people. They give rise to a sense of what is possible. Uh, it reminded me of a line from the philosopher Alistair McIntyre. He writes this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? We're narrative creatures. We, we tell stories to, about virtue, about what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. And we find ourselves in, that, in those stories. He goes on to write, Deprive children of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. Jesus did not just leave us a symbol. He left us his presence connected to a much bigger story. He gave us this meal as a way of telling the story and of letting that story shape us. The word of scripture became embodied in a community gathered around meal. In fact, later when Jesus uh, appears to his disciples uh, after the resurrection, he appears to them while they're at table. And it is in the breaking of bread that their eyes are opened, that they are aware to, of the reality of his presence among them because the table is the place where they are confronted also with the reality of their sin. One by one in this story, they protest. Surely you don't mean me. And sure enough, only one of them will betray him. But one by one, all of them will abandon him. 
Betrayal sets the mood for the entire meal. Everyone's hand is in the dish. Which is why there is a second action. Just as Jesus says to the disciples, take this bread, signifying that this is an action on their part, he gave them the cup. That is his action. He offered it to them the same way that he has offered his whole life to them. This is a gift poured out for many. And with this action, the question that was raised at the dinner party in the passage before where the woman poured out the perfume and the disciples asked, why such a waste? That question quietly reverberates again in this meal. You see, because Jesus is the gift poured out. They all drink. They all swear their allegiance. Then they all fall away. They all flee. Jesus is the gift poured out to those who would betray him. Why such a waste? That is the bigger question of Mark's gospel. Why waste Jesus on people such as this? And the answer is found in this table. It's found in this room. It's found in our city. It's found in our world. The table is not just a place where Jesus blesses and says grace. The table is a place where Jesus extends his grace. Why such an extravagant waste? Because at the heart of the gospel is the God who gave the gift of his presence, knowing full well it would be misunderstood by some and rejected by others, but he poured himself out anyway. God's extravagance is you. God never regrets wasting everything he is for you. There is nothing in this table about the worthiness of the disciples that is made abundantly clear by the actions that follow. And yet somehow in Jesus, this table is a place of right standing based not on merit, but only on need. In his characteristically joyful tone, the author Philip Yancey writes this, table is the time to celebrate. This table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who are no longer afraid of death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers and sinners alive. One of my favorite things each week is Keenan, who his, 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 he and his mother Paula, they come to the first service, and he comes running down the aisle to be the first in line every week. And I think, friends, that is the only sane response to the grace that is offered at this table. We practice hospitality and the presence of Jesus around a meal with each other so that we can experience God's hospitality of us. And in the same way that Jesus takes 
and blesses the bread. He takes and he blesses his disciples. We say those words every week when we come to the table as an act of remembrance, of memorializing the event and how central it is to our lives as disciples of Jesus. We tell the story in here so that we can live the story out there. And so, friends, as we come, I want to invite you to remember your story. Remember how God has delivered you. Remember how God is present to you. The God who has pronounced deliverance before, He will do it again. Amen.